My goodness, my brain is blown. I've just had such an informative podcast and what a lovely woman Kate is. This is Kate Robinson, who is the daughter and collaborator of the educationist Sir Ken Robinson. You know the one, don't you? Sir Ken Robinson, who created the most listened and watched TED Talk of all time. I think it's 75 million views at this point in time. As I said, it's been mind-blowing stuff, imagining what's possible for our children in the future, what's happening to our children in the education system today. You can imagine I was taking notes for Harry. What is the future? What is the future of this incredible generation? So grab that notebook, as I say, take notes, have conversations with your children. I think one of the most beautiful things that Kate said is trust in your children, listen to them and find out who they are, not what they want to be, what you want them to be, but find out literally who they are and celebrate that. It's just been one of those wonderful moments that I'm so, so privileged to be recording this podcast and I get to have these moments firsthand. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Adobe, who've helped bring this podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Kate. I am completely thrilled to be speaking to you today. Um, Your father, the late, great Sir Ken Robinson, was a man with such a beautiful mind and one who spent his entire life dedicated to transforming the education system. His talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity, remains one of the most viewed TED Talks ever. And the last time I looked at it, I think it had something like 74 million views. I mean, that is just unbelievable. Did you see the impact of that TED talk? No. So when he spoke at TED, they didn't put the talks online. So he was one of the first five talks that they put online, but it was just an in-person event at the time. And after, um, I don't know, after a couple of weeks afterwards, he got an email from TED saying, you know, here's the recording with, we're trialing this new idea where we put the videos online. Um, Can we include you in it? And so he watched the video and he showed my mum and her only feedback was, I wish you'd worn a different shirt. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, I mean, yes, yeah, so I'm so pleased that he did get to actually see what <laughs> then became the the the, the most viewed yeah. uh, TED talk ever. I mean, it's yeah. it's quite an amazing thing. You're his daughter yes. and um, co-collaborator. You're now continuing his work and the family legacy. Um, so it's a complete huge honour to be speaking to you today. Your face has been cut out on my podcast pop wall. <laughs> 
for a really, really long yes. time. I, I like to do things old fashioned. So, you know, we print out picture, cut them out, put them up on the wall, I move love things that. around. So <laughs> you've 100% been there. So I'm so honoured to be speaking to you. I wonder if we might, um, for a little background, for anyone who isn't familiar, maybe the one or two people on the planet who hasn't seen the TED Talk, might you just share a little about your father's work? Yeah. I know you've described it, and I love this, as a love letter to human potential. What does that mean? I have. Um, you're right. Well, I had this understanding, not a misunderstanding, I don't think, but I had an understanding of his work before he died, of working with him. Um, and it is very much a criticism of a lot of the systems that we've created that we take for granted, um, in particular our education system. But he also talked about our businesses and our societies and in particular when it comes to education about how it's it, it stifles creativity. It, it really is this kind of one size fits all model where, you know, you, you sort of all start at the same point and you pass it at various points. You know, you all sort of move along the same journey, you take exams, you get graded on them and then you go off on different trajectories based on them. But his point is that life is so much more diverse than that it's the beauty of life mm. you know life is the natural world and that's you know nature and human beings the, the natural world thrives on diversity and education in particular is set up on conformity and a lot of our businesses are too i mean you mm. you know you you separate people out the creatives with you know the the, the non-creatives the legal team and the you know the accountant mm. teams as if there's nothing creative in those pursuits and what i found when i was so me i finished his book um which is a manifesto called imagine if that came out in march and when i was it's kind of a big task to do his manifesto after he'd passed away. Mm. So I was reading everything I possibly could to get my head around it. And what really struck me actually is it is a criticism of these systems. But there's a reason why he's been critical of them. It's not just to be sort of pernickety. It's because he had yes. such a belief in what we as a species are capable of creating if we get the conditions right. So it's a real plea to create the conditions for each and every person to thrive. It reminds me of that, um, and I'm going to, you know, obviously, because I'm now recording, not do any justice whatsoever. Isn't it where Einstein is talking about judging a fish if it could climb a tree? Yeah. And that wonderful cartoon, if you, could, if anyone watching this, just Google this um, and you'll see the whole sort of rainforest lining up the elephants <laughs> and the giraffes and the monkeys and, every, yeah. and the fish and everyone. And basically it's, um, well, you're nodding your head. You're going to do this better than I am. <laughs> it's basically judging, isn't it? Saying that, you know, if you all need to climb a tree in order to be successful. Yeah, it's. I think the quote is something like, um, we're all intelligent, but if you judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it would spend its whole life feeling stupid. Exactly that, everybody. Because it's not where its intelligence is. <laughs> I've probably butchered that as well, but that's the gist of it. Absolutely. And it's, it's a very powerful... Um, way of looking at things. Yeah. I want to go back to your childhood um, because you were born in Stratford-upon-Avon and your father, was. Ken, was a professor mm -hmm. um, and your mother, Marie... Therese? Therese. Is that right? Yeah, Mary Therese. Therese. Yeah. I mean, what a is it I Irish? Know. It's a French name, but she's Liverpudlian, but her mum was Irish. Um, right, and okay. actually all of her friends in the 1950s in Liverpool had names that were French. You know, they were all sort oh. of Jean-Claire <laughs> and things, and they were all oh, just really? from Old Swan in Liverpool. Yeah, no, it was obviously of the tr <laughs> it was obviously the trend at the time. <laughs> and she was a teacher in Liverpool. She um, was, yeah. Which is where your parents met. Yeah. Um, when you were 12, you moved to LA mm -hmm. and attended an all-American school. And it was a highly competitive atmosphere. And I read when researching you for this podcast that you weren't an academic. So school wasn't always an easy place for you, which obviously is very fitting that your dad obviously 
observed his most loved as well going through these plights. After failing some tests at school, you felt as though you were being put in a box and labelled hopeless. Mm -hmm. How did this impact you at the time? Because obviously we're talking about this all in retrospect, but at the time it must have been very difficult. It was. And actually we're we're building Dad's archive at the moment. And so I've got all these boxes, belongings upstairs. um, And in one of them, I found all of my school reports that he'd kept and all these letters from teachers saying, you know, dear Mr. Robinson, Kate has, you know, Kate failed this test. I'm writing to let you know that she's not going to pass the class or we're assigning her a student tutor. But he never passed on to me <laughs> at the time. I think he just he thought not? she better not. Yeah, she's better off not knowing. But the, I mean, the, the reports I did see and they are damning. <laughs> you know, sort of just absolutely <laughs> cringing, except for dance and drama where um, where the reviews were glowing. But it is all... And oddly, I got great re- I got great marks for contributions in class. You know, I was obviously very mm-hmm. involved in the class discussions and then I just didn't pass tests. Um, I don't... I get the impression I didn't do the homework <laughs> either. Um, but I was, I was there in the moment and then sort of left and just... I was one of those people that Dad talked about. And the school that we went to, as you say, in America, it was an all-American one. And I think they chose it because, you know, it had incredible arts facilities. It had a theatre, it had a dance company, you know, it had it had state-of-the-art everything, basically. And, you know, the I think quite often when you look at a school, what the brochure says is actually quite different to the culture of the school itself. So the culture mm-hmm. of the school was kids crying for getting a 98% in the test, literally crying. Because they, right. you know, they got two marks off a perfect school, like an Ivy League school or something. It was a former military school, but yeah, the yeah. Um, but it did feed okay. all the <laughs> did feed to all the Ivy League schools. <laughs> but my brother went there. My brother's four years older than I am, and he just thrived. You know, he was in the theatre company, and he is very academically minded. You know, he went on to an mm-hmm. Ivy League university, and it just worked for him. But when it became abundantly clear that it wasn't working for me, and I got um, I got glandular fever. And was off for a month and everyone started sending me these text messages like, you're going to fail the 10th grade, you know, your life is over, you've not done the homework. And so I forced myself back into school sooner than I should have. And I got kicked out of my first class at 8.30 in the morning for not having read The Great Gatsby. Which sucks because I will never read The Great Gatsby, Holly. (laughs) Just, you know, and it's it's one of the all-time greats, isn't it? And I will never... I'll never read it. Um, Me neither. <laughs> no, Me thank you. Neither. In solidarity, thank you. Yeah, let's just do this together <laughs> yeah. in case anyone listening's thinking, geez, these two. <laughs> no, we I'm make sh- up for it in other ways, we everybody, do. thanks. We do. And I'm sure it's a brilliant book. I've heard it's a brilliant book, but I got kicked out because I hadn't read it. And um, I did what any responsible teenager would do and called my parents crying from the bathroom. <laughs> I was still really sick. Yeah. Um, but they came in and they took me out of the school and we had this, and actually the head teacher said to my parents that the school had failed me, which okay. was sort of nice to hear it here at the time. But we had all, you know, we looked at other schools, we looked at homeschooling, we looked at getting a private tutor, we, you know, we looked at, and I should say my story is so privileged. You know, it really mm-hmm. is. I had not only parents who were in a financial position to support me through it, but also parents who understood you know, yes, who didn't, who didn't punish, yeah, and, exactly. and you know, understood me in the way that my brain worked. And they said, you know, if you if you're in England at 16, you could leave school, and it's not your fault that you're not in England. So, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to leave. And it, you know, it really, what it was terrifying, but it was when my life began. You know, I went from sort of feeling like like you said, you know, putting these boxes labeled hopeless, where I didn't believe. You know, I was. You know, <laughs> I had a friend, a friend, a good friend, who told me that I'd get into college because my dad would get me into college. Right. And it was, you know, to be fair, if I had got into college, that may, maybe that that you know, I don't think I would have got in on my grades, um, depending mm. on what college. You know, that's university. Sorry, in American speak. Did your parents? I love this word. Did your parents call it this unschooling? 
Because when I heard that word, I don't think that's a popular word. Well, no. certainly I've never heard it. So, but again, hey, I haven't yeah. read Great Gatsby, and maybe it's in there. But um, unschooling—it's—it's. Yeah. Tell me about that because that is an amazing thing. It's great. It's it's a it's a sort of newer movement, and we didn't call it that at the time. But looking back, I'd say it's what we did. So you have homeschooling, obviously, which is and in homeschooling, particularly in the UK, is quite heavily regulated you know you have to follow certain there are certain yeah. marks that you have to get you know you're, you're observed and which makes you know it makes some sense because you know you want to trust that parents are taking a lead in their children's education as opposed to sort absolutely of letting them run wild in the hills but unschooling for us was different because I was 16 so I was of an age where we just sort of made my own curriculum you know we didn't and we were in America but we just I did um I did jewelry making classes and I did courses on music history. I did language classes. I worked for Miley Cyrus there for a brief stint. Cool. Again, story of privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in a music production company and we put together, you know, there were, there were certain rules that we went into it with, um, which was I couldn't, and I, ha- I found this list recently, I couldn't run away with the circus. I couldn't sell my body for money. I couldn't have a baby um, and I couldn't spend all day just lying around in bed doing nothing and sort of wasting away. I had to get up and do things. And so my mum has this brilliant philosophy that if you don't know what you want to do, go and help somebody else, you know, Mm. so go and volunteer. And so I knew I wanted to reconnect with myself physically because I was a teenager and I wasn't, I used to dance. I wasn't dancing and I'd been sick. So we were on the way to sign up for the gym and we passed the, and I wanted to do Italian classes. And on the way to the gym, we passed uh, Meals on Wheels where I signed up to volunteer. Uh, where they, you deliver food to people who who can't get out to get it themselves, and we passed the Italian centre for uh, the Italian cultural centre in West LA that I swear wasn't there the day before, <laughs> but suddenly sort of like the room of requirement the universe just built like, it quickly that night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, to fit in, so I so I did. I did. You know, it was um, within those rules. You know, I was I was up. I was active. I was learning, and you know, I learnt more in in that period than you know, any of the time. And and surprise, surprise, you know, I'm sure, as I said, I'm sure The Great Gatsby is a fantastic book, but I don't feel like my life is any less rich for not having read it. Do you think that's where your real education sort of started? I think that lots of people, I don't know, it's, it's one of the things we were talking offline about, and, and I'm sure Harry will pop up during this um, conversation because I battle so much with it. But it's this sort of on the, on the last year of school that we're about to go through with him. Mm-hmm. And then off to university and things like that. You know, I talk about my own story, which was going into the workplace and getting my job, um, you know, around my 17th birthday. And actually, I was 17 and I spent my 18th birthday in the office and I have worked ever since that point in time. And what I learned in those years, you know, and they all came and then, you know, my counterparts would come out of university and ultimately not their boss, but of the same age range, I would have been their boss. What I'd learned in those three years of real life, yeah. the ups and downs, the the unfairness, the all those sorts of things, it's, it's quite amazing that that education of real life is put on pause, I suppose. Yeah. And I've got some views on university and I just, I find it very difficult to... Um, I find it difficult to lose my child to university when you hear that some people have five hours of lectures a week Mm -hmm. and things like this. And what are you doing for the rest of the time? You know, and and, and actually in real life, you can't do that. That's not what can happen. So do you feel that your lights came back on, so to speak? And and what's your viewpoint, I suppose, on, on real life versus sort of the, 
I know it's a big one here yeah. in terms of the, the, the system. Or, and I'm, we're going to yeah. keep going, by the way, on this subject. No, this so you is don't great. Need to answer I'm here. The whole thing I'm here in. because I'm going to ask you continuously throughout this. But yeah, because your lights came on. Yeah. Don't we wish that that would happen to many other young people? Oh, 100%. You know, one, one example I often think of is I have been declared grammar literate by the state of California twice. So in, in the ninth, 10th grade in LA, you do something called the, the grammar competency exam. And I failed it twice and they didn't let me take it a third time. So I'm, I'm officially grammar illiterate as, as far as the state of California okay. is concerned. I'm also a published author by Penguin. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not really got in the way, you know, and I wanted to go back when, when I saw those, the school reports, you know, and it was, you know, she's, she's not manning to anything in English and I loved English, but I, I was sort of shocked to read it because my memory is I loved English and you know, my teacher did not love me. Um, my American history teacher and, and civics teacher, you know, the same thing said, you know, Kate just has to commit to something and, you know, she's letting herself down and all this kind of stuff. And I went through everything and I thought, you know, the French teacher said the, you know, I just look bored in class. And I remember my dad saying, do you think your class might be boring? <laughs> Uh, to her face Um, and she said but there are parts of learning a language that are boring and he said but you don't see people losing interest whilst they're learning a language in France you know people are learning French they're Mm. getting you can make anything Mm. interesting but I when I went through that I thought I'm a published author so the English thing obviously worked out fine I actually speak fluent French now because I had a French boyfriend so that worked out fine and I got my U.S. citizenship which means I passed the U.S. history test that most Americans can't pass if they're born there yeah and I just went through all of that and I thought you know all this concern and panic you guys had that I was going to amount to nothing. And actually on my own terms, I've done really well as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not... Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very yeah. much. And But to your point, it's a lot of work. You know, it's a, it is mm. it is that lesson of you can't spend the day on the sofa. You have to get up and commit to something. And you're right, I, I worry about universities because on top of, as you say, the five hour, you know, a week commitment. And obviously some people don't have that. That's Depends also craziness. Studying. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You, you can pay the same tuition yeah. fees and that one can have five hours and one can yeah. have, but I'm learning all this by the way. <laughs> so I'm just putting that little terms, like yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily completely know what I'm talking about. I'm just freaking out a little bit, but carry Fair on. <laughs> but, but then not to add to your freaking outness, but there's um, the fees that that scare me. You know, there's mm. the fact that you're saddled with debt. And I I was an advisor, I won't, I won't name and shame it, but I was an advisor on a program a few years ago that um, it's, it's a What's the word? It's like a theme park for kids and they give kids real world experience where they get to work in a shop or they get to, you know, work as a fireman and things. And um, in this advisory meeting, they were saying, you know, and if, if the kids go to the university, they get paid more for these activities. It's, it's pretend money, but they get paid more for these activities if they complete a university degree. And I said, presumably you're going to take a percentage of that off, though, to pay for the student loans for the fact that they went to university yep. and got met with crickets and disdain. But I thought, but it's, it's not this this dream that we've sold people that if you get to a certain if you pass the grades and then you go to university and you commit and you pass those grades you will graduate and people will be lining up to offer you a job and you will do the same job until you retire and you'll be set for life and it's just not true it was true it was you know dad yes it was you know when dad went to university he was the first in his family and he you know got a job as a result of it but um i i we hired when i used to work at 100 which is an, a finnish education initiative we hired a research assistant to research so the it, it publishes 100 education innovations every year that are changing the face of education oh how interesting it's very cool so i had we hired a an, an research assistant to help identify the research innovations i say girl she was a woman you know but in her early 20s mm. early, a woman of an yes. early 20s um and the amount of arguments we had because this wasn't research, you know, this wasn't, you know, when, when she was at university, she was taught, this is how you do research. And I just, ha- the amount of times, you know, you'd say, 
I don't care what you did in university. This is the job that's paying you. This is this is a job we need. This is a mm. job you signed up for. A lot of it actually is unlearning what you've learned in university because it's so not lined up. I mean, that's a very specific example, but it does happen, you know, where you you actually have to take things that have been entirely theoretical in a university capacity and sort of unlearn them when it comes to real to life. The real, to the real life, yeah. It's not to say there isn't any value to university. I don't think everybody has to go and I don't think everybody should go. And I think that's a dangerous myth that we force people to feel like they have to go, they have to get settled by debt. Um, and if they don't, they're missing out on opportunities. That you know, There's a lot to be said for your first taste of independence, your first taste of sort of taking care of yourself to some extent, for the social scenes of it, and for ultimately what you do learn. But it is um, it is dangerous, this myth that you have to go or you're, you know, you're failing. And it, it's, it's unique to a handful of countries. You know, places like Finland, which often gets touted as the best education systems in the world, you can split off and do a vocational course and, and then meet back up and not be penalised for the fact that you've done that rather than gone the traditional route. I think that's the thing. It's the options, isn't it? It's the it? options, yeah. It's the options. I know you've said that also there's like a, a danger that... Um, that we also sort of give our young um, this sort of thought that life begins after 18. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating as well, that suddenly after 18, and you can almost liken it to mm -hmm. after university, you're just going to have all the answers yeah. and you're going to be fully fledged adults. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like before and after. Yeah. Whereas actually, this is the thing, when you think back to your childhood and all those experiences yeah. that you gained, you had room to grow you know, yeah. and actually become that person. And it's, 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 it's an odd thing that we do. Do you think we need to be better communicating with our young? Yes, massively. I think we need to be having open conversations with them and asking for their opinions as well. It's actually, I, I do feel quite strongly about this. You're right, it, it brings to mind this image that, you know, we go to say university as a caterpillar and we turn into the chrysalis and then we emerge as a butterfly at the end and you can fly and you can't, you come out the other end you know, maybe with like half a wing, <laughs> sort of <laughs> flapping around in a circle. But it doesn't fit the narrative, does it? Because we, no. so much of adulthood when it comes to relating to young people is authoritarian. And I, I have this battle, I have a four-year-old daughter and I want her to know that I'm in charge because if I say stop at the street, I need her to stop at the street. You know, if I ask mm -hmm. her to stop doing something that's dangerous, I need her to know that my voice saying stop means you stop. It's not a discussion. It's mm -hmm. I'm in charge in this scenario. But at the same time, I also want her to know that she has a voice that matters. And when we come to how we relate to young people, it doesn't fit the narrative to tell them that we're still trying to figure it out, you know, because you need them to, the way the current system's set up, you need them to go to school for 22,000 hours. You need them to not ask questions and to turn the homework assignments when they're told to and to, you know, pass the tests because we say that they should. Um, and if we suddenly turn around and say, by the way, at the end of all this, you're going to be just as confused, if not more so, um, but you'll be in charge. It undermines the authority, doesn't it? You know, you, yes. how, how do you turn around for generation and say, there's no, when you the get your diploma, there's, there's no tunnel. secret. There's no, there is no it's light. It's just a different end. tunnel. No, it's a different tunnel. Yes. Um, there's no secret of life in the diploma that you get. You know, it doesn't, there's no recipe at the end of this that you can just follow. You, um, you're suddenly on your own trying to figure it out. So this feels like we need to give our children permission to find themselves or yeah. to find their passions, yeah. to think about what makes them tick. I know you're not saying that all schools are terrible. Of course, we're not. And, no, and no. we're not saying as well, university either. Um, as you said, you know, one of the always the counterparts to me talking about university is for those who went to university, but I met my lifelong friends. I have yeah. now got a circle. I met my husband there. I, yeah. do you know what I mean? So there's so many amazing things there. Um, 
So it's not about bashing these things. We're just yeah. having this conversation. And there are some degrees that you need people to go to university for. You know, we always talk about that. You, you need absolutely. your doctor to have, you need to, a doctor. to have done their years of medical <laughs> school. You want your lawyer to understand the contracts that they're writing. It's just that it's not necessary for everybody. But what we're acknowledging and what you're saying here is that mass education system can't necessarily cater to the individuals. And no. this is coming into your father's talk and things. But tell me that, the, you know, the systems, I know you've said that are designed, they're man-made. Yeah. You know, they are a man-made system. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's not, an, it's not come from nature. No. <laughs> this isn't something, you know. So tell me about this, that this is a big issue, isn't it? Mass yep. education, absolutely huge issue. It's it's one of two parts, which is that actually it's not just about the children. It, it's, well, it's children, it's parents, and mm -hmm. it's the system itself and society and what it wants spit out at the end of it. Yeah. And it helps everybody conform and everyone's got their cookie cutter line and it's all, do you know what I mean, simple. Yeah. Tell me about your view of this narrow perspective. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it was designed for a very different time, is the first thing to say. You know, the the... And this is said quite a bit, but it doesn't mean it's any less true. The way that education runs now, the way that we recognise an education system, if you think of it from a Western perspective, certainly in the UK and the US, it was set up to the needs of the Industrial Revolution, which meant that it didn't need everybody to go to university. In fact, it needed everybody to stop at a certain point and do manual labour. Mm -hmm. um, so it was set up with that in mind. So for the majority of people to go for a certain amount of time and then to drop off and to go into the workforce... A few, a, a, another group of sort of less people to go up a little bit higher and then drop off, and then a really small group to go off to university and be the people who will be in charge of everybody else who's dropped off at various points. Um, you know, the sort of triangle process. Yeah. The world has changed so much since then. Because it's changed so much, suddenly everybody's going right the way through. People aren't dropping off where they were originally supposed to. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to go right the way through and graduate university. And it's what dad referred to as academic inflation. Suddenly everybody has a degree, so the degree isn't worth... Suddenly you need what a master's where you... Yeah, you need yeah. a master's where you used to need just a BA. You need a PhD where you needed a master's. Um, and at the end of that, it's still not a guarantee... Yes. You know, that you're going to get the top job, that you're going to walk in and, and be the person in charge. The thing is, is that human beings and our ecosystems and our cultures... And natural. You know, we're not machines. It, we're yeah. increasingly going in that direction, but we're not. We're human beings. You know, we are mammals and we like to not talk about the fact that we're mammals. And mm. there's a whole other conversation there about childbirth and mammalian instincts that we also try and suppress. But the thing with us being mammals is that we have this diversity of skill sets and our ecosystems depend upon a diversity of skill sets in the same way that if you think of any ecosystem, you think of, say, a rainforest, you know, and there are all these little bits of it. There's the trees and the mushrooms and the soil and the rain and the weather and, and you know, the insects, everything that comes together to make an ecosystem work. And we're the same. You know, human ecosystems depend on, if you think of the example I often give, is you, if you think of the building, that any building, think of the, the one that you're in right now. Yep. How many different skill set went into just making that building possible? There was a person who thought of it, the person who then went out to get the funding, the legal team who drew it up, the people who identified the plot of land, the people who built the, you know, dug the foundations. That's before you start getting into the people who did the plumbing and the bricklaying and the electrics and the interior design and the plastering and, you know, and that's one building, that we sort of just think, oh, you know, it's a building. But the amount yeah. of different passions and skills and techniques that went into just erecting a single building, and you put that on the scale then of cities and cultures and countries, and it's huge. You know, we need the people who care about the foundations as much as we need the people who make it look pretty at the end of it. And so the fact that then our school systems tell you that actually there's only a certain amount of skills that are important, it's not just 
a lie that I think is dangerous for people's well-being. It's also a lie when it comes to our cultures because you get, you know, all these people who've qualified with a certain yes. specific set of degrees and then we're, we're missing other ones and people are unhappy as a result of it because they felt like, you know, actually my passion is bricklaying, but I've been forced into electrics <laughs> just to keep running with that metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? You, you yeah, sort of, you try and... No, you've described yeah. it beautifully. What can we do as parents, I suppose, <laughs> to... You know, we're all responsible for building our cultures and maybe yeah. it starts at home to understand our children better, not just what they maybe hope to be one day, yeah, but who they actually are. And I asked this and my son has started listening to this podcast, but hey, <laughs> he's on night number one and it's 160 down. So I'm right. wondering if this one, but I'm going to, I'm going to put this one right to the top when we're talking about this thing. <laughs> But in terms of, you know, he's got an idea of what he wants to do and become. And maybe I don't know where it's all been informed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But is that actually who he is? And we call it finding your diamond. We say this at Holly & Co., you know, just trying to find people's diamonds when I'm helping small businesses understand what they're great at. Yeah. You know, what is that person's diamond that no one else actually has. Now, as adults, this is quite a hard thing to get into. We normally go back to childhood, actually. Yeah. What were you fascinated in? But for those listening with children, what could they do to help that conversation or to even open that up as yeah. not what the careers library is telling you that you might become from that very, very grey and boring list? <laughs> but, you know, what, what what is the world going to be so pleased that you pursued it's a very it's a brilliant question and I um I have all these different feelings around it because I have you know I'm a mother as well mm -hmm. um, and my daughter's four so she's at a different point in her journey than your son is but she'll get to where your son is and you just hope that by the time she gets that point you know she's at she's at a really lovely school but I'm constantly thinking just just don't take her out of herself and try and you know fit don't don't put her in a box that's my own her own trauma yes. I'm trying to not help her inherit um I think you, you raise a, a very interesting point here, which is what you do is somewhat irrelevant. What you go on to do, particularly these days, it didn't used to be, you know, you used to go and say, I'm going to be a postman mm -hmm. and you would do that right the way through until you retired. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know this because you, you know, you've done so many things. Yeah. Most people graduating now will do lots of different things. Yeah. You know, it's very, it, it, there are still company people out there, but it's rare to meet people. Quite often you meet people who, you know, you do something for a number of years, particularly in the younger generations for a couple of years, and then you swap and try something else. Yes. So actually who you are is much more important because that's, you know, that should stay the same based on, on wherever you go. When it comes to something, what we're trying to do with our daughter is try and expose her to as much as possible. And you're going to miss things. <laughs> she's obsessed with circus at the moment. She wants to fly. So she's doing trapeze classes. You know, she's four. She's not yeah. actually doing, but she, she thinks she is. <laughs> so it that's what matters. Be 10 inches from the floor, <laughs> yeah. but for her, she's flying high. For her and for me, I'm still panicking. <laughs> um, but you know, that we do as parents, and with us so much on us as parents, now more so than ever, because the whole thing of it takes a village to raise a child. We don't have our villages anymore. Yes. You know, we, we used to live in intergenerational families and closeness of communities. And now your mothers work, fathers work. You don't really know your neighbours, particularly if you live in London. Um, and you have to feel like you have to do everything on your own. So one sort of relief for a lot of parents is when kids go to school, you think, well, OK, well, I can tick that off my worry list. They're in the system. They'll be taken care of. And unfortunately, you can't do that. Your child's teachers will see some of them. And you'll see some of them. So neither of you gets the full picture really once they're in school. Mm. So it's about building relationship with your child's teachers so that you can have an open dialogue and with your child so you can have an open dialogue, you know, so there's this sort of three-way correspondence happening. Um, but you you just can't take your eye off the ball with it. It's about being, it's not being, you know, 
I don't want to say it's about micromanaging and the last thing teachers need right now is for parents to go in and micromanage them. But it is about recognising, you know, teachers are also over, overwrought, particularly post-COVID. Um, and they're expected to be, you know, emotional counsellors as well as educators and, yes. you know, career counsellors as well. You know, they're, they're supposed to sort of suddenly do everything, keep children safe and keep them fed. And, and that's not really in their job description either. As you know, I'm passionate about celebrating small businesses and championing creativity within all of us. That's why I'm thrilled to be working with Adobe Express, who each week are handing over their ad break to a small business founder, shining a light on their own businesses and sharing how Adobe Express really is helping fuel their creativity. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anita. And together, we are the founders of MadeKind. Our business specialises in natural products for the home and body that are plant-based, effective and refillable. We use the purest ingredients derived from nature, designed to nourish and protect your skin and hair. And our cleaning products use the power of plants to clean effectively, but are safe for families and pets, as well as doing no harm to the planet. All our products also come in beautiful forever glass bottles, which can be refilled again and again. As well as selling direct to customers, we also supply MadeKind products to hotels, restaurants, farm shops, etc. But having so many different selling channels can be challenging. We need to create quick, professional-looking media relevant to each niche audience. And Adobe Express has allowed us to do just that. Adobe Express really does have everything you need to design standout content that's so easy to create and in no time at all. And as projects are synced across the web and mobile apps, it means you can work anywhere which as working mums fits into our busy lives. Next week we have an event and to prepare we were both able to hop into Adobe Express and use their templates to create leaflets, assets for our social media and to even schedule our posts for the event ahead of time. It just really helps to manage the juggle of owning a small business. MadeKind is on a mission to create purposeful products that don't cost the earth. We would love to share our journey with you. Find us on Instagram at made.kind or visit our website madekind.co.uk. And if you use the code I know Holly, then we will give you 10% off your first order. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you once more to Adobe, who have helped to make this podcast episode happen. If you want to find out more about Adobe Express and how it can help your business, head over to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It's an interesting one, isn't it? From a parent's point of view. Yeah. You know, and I, I think about that responsibility where your education system is not trying to find their diamond. Yeah. You know, the education system is not, that's not what their job is. Their job is, is to go from A to Z in a certain amount of time, yeah. um, achieving the best grades. But it's not necessarily about what that individual's diamond is and nurturing yeah. it and finding it and shining it and yeah. encouraging it. And I think about famously in your dad's TED Talk where my favourite bit, I'm sure everyone's, funny enough, 74 million's favourite <laughs> bit probably, but where he talks about the young girl and the yeah. young girl in the classroom for anyone who hasn't listened is, you know, can't sit still and nowadays might be diagnosed with ADHD and actually I think it's the teacher that says you know mum look she's dancing and she goes on to not go to special school or anything like that or having separate classes 
She goes to dance school. She's encouraged to go to dance school and then becomes one of the most famous dancers and choreographers and working with Andrew Lloyd Webber and things like that. But that was a bit of a sliding doors moment, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Because that could have gone completely the other way. Yeah. Because it's hard. We're all busier than we've ever been. Parents, you've got both parents working. You've now think that the education system okay, tick, right, okay, I'm going to get on with paying the bills and doing that and keeping them fed, keeping them nurtured. But actually, what we're saying now is, no, you need to also keep a close eye on them as a whole. And maybe the summary is is almost like, you just, if you can just find out what their diamond is, maybe Mm -hmm. in time, and and that's what you're doing with your daughter, being curious to almost allow her to find that. Potentially, that's the job of us parents, along with helping them cope with the education system, which, by the way, brings up huge amounts of other issues, doesn't it? But it, maybe it is that finding of their diamond. That's yeah. the parent's job. I, mean, you know, I was going to say, we call it the element. So finding your element, which is a book that dad wrote. And dad described um, the element as the point where natural passion meets personal aptitude. So it's what, where what we you go. love to do. Diamond is what, aside, yeah. Ken is here. The <laughs> element. That's the right. element. So say yeah. that again. So it's where so, you're... It's where personal passion meets natural aptitude, which essentially means it's where what you love to do meets what you're good at. And they're both important because you can be really good at things and not love them. You know, you meet loads of people who've studied piano their whole life and just really kind of can, but would rather not. Um, And then you meet loads of people who really love the piano, but try as they might, just can't quite get a grip on it. And that's not your element (laughs) in that case, unfortunately. (laughs) It's something you love to do, but it's not your element. Um, And dad's contention was that everybody has an element and it's about finding what that is. And he wrote another book called Finding Your Element with various exercises. And in it, there's, you know, this idea of finding your tribe. So meeting other people who love that too, or who are in the same, Mm. which is, you know, something that you you do with the small businesses, you know, Mm. a small business, meaning other small businesses, it, it, that sort of sense of community and camaraderie is huge. You know, it it really boosts morale. So the other, the other example dad gave in the element was a man called Bart Connor, who was an Olympic gymnast uh, who married Nadia Komanech. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I could be wrong. I'm she was the positive first. you are. <laughs> Thank you. Positive. She was the first perfect 10 gymnastics. But he, his mum realised that he could walk upstairs on his hands as well as he could on his feet. And it was a party trick. You know, people would come around and he'd walk up the stairs on his hands. They took him to a gymnastics centre and he said he walked in and it just felt like it was where he was meant to be. You know, everybody was walking on their hands and doing backflips and he just felt like, you know, whereas dad said, if you took dad into a gymnastics centre, I mean, dad had polio, but if you took him into a gymnastics centre, it's not how he would have felt about it. You know, it would have smelt funny and he would have been scared of heights. And But for Bart Connor, he walked in and he just knew that was where he was meant to be. Um, so the Elements got lots of stories of people like that, you know, who often in spite of their education found what it was that they truly love. And the case is that actually there are a few reasons why you should find your element. One is because life is short and you only have one chance to live it. And so why would you waste it doing something that isn't the thing that you're meant to be doing, you know, not pursuing your diamond? Yes. Um, and the other is that our societies depend on them, like we were talking about. You know, we we depend on a diversity of talents and skills and interests to help our cultures flourish. And then, you know, there's a, there's a third one, which is being a mentor. Once you've figured out what your element is, going around and helping other people find theirs, you know, because no one really does anything on their own. You know, you do need somebody mm. to hold your hand and, and get on with it. And my dad literally wrote the book. So when it comes to my parenting... <laughs> <laughs> you know, Can I'm possibly going. Hang overboard. on a minute. Let me just <laughs> this is grandpa's book. Let me just. <laughs> She's a trapeze artist. This is it. It's trapeze. Um, Tell me when you talk about this sort of like finding your element, and then yeah. thus that would fuel the diversity that you're talking about. Because yeah. by very nature, then yeah. everyone would be different and doing their different bits to building your yeah. analogy, the home. 
But it's hard, isn't it, for our teachers? As you said, yes. you mentioned about COVID and, and what they've taken on and the challenge now of the children that they've got. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're recording on the week that the A-level results are about to come out, right? And I've just yeah. heard the statistics and I'm just, oh gosh, I don't yeah. want to be a child or parent having to deal with all of that. No. It's hard for a teacher to teach from the heart, though. It's hard for yeah. a teacher to get that diamond, follow the education system, find the diamond, nourish it and get your grades at the time. How do we start to address this? Because I heard you speaking about this mandate of the 40 minute lesson. And then you said the bell rings and then you all change to another classroom and you do another subject. And you said something like, you know, if we did that in our jobs, how would we get anything done? No, businesses would grind to a halt and you'd be so angry. (laughs) Every 40 minutes you had to stop in mid-flow and get up and move somewhere else to a whole new set of people and and try and adjust to their energy and swap out, you know, stop thinking what you're thinking about before and start thinking about something new. It's actually not mandated. It's one of those things in the education system that we've always done it that way, so people assume that we have to do it that way, but there's nowhere actually dictated that the the, the school day has to be set out like that. In the same way, there's no dictate, you know, there's nothing that dictates the way a classroom should look or that students can't participate, that teachers have to stand in the front of the classroom. There's actually quite a lot of flexibility within the system as it is. It's just we take it so much for granted that it's always been that way. Um, the dad always gave an example of senses. So if you ask somebody how many senses they have, they say five. Holly, I should be able to rattle off our five senses, but I always miss oh one. God, so bear with me. I'm not going to pick them up. I also thought they were six. So no, listen, so this, we're this, in this, the six. same bubble here. We're in the Gatsby bubble. <laughs> we are okay? the Gatsby bubble. But the six senses the, is, you know, the yeah. Hilly Joel we Osmond know talking to dead people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's what? It's taste, smell, sight, sound and touch. Yes. Yes. She did it. (laughs) Um, So, but actually, we have at least nine. You know, so we have a sense of temperature. We have a sense of temperature. We have a sense of balance. We have a sense of awareness and space. And they're all genuine. So to be a sense, you have to have an experience and a part of the body related to it. So touch is your tongue, you know, and and taste taste is your tongue and touch is is your skin. Um, For balance, it's your inner ear. You know, for temperature, it's it's the... um, why am I blanking on the word here? But it's good. It's, it's well. It's, it's all the little receptors in the skin that sort oh, of yeah, control yeah, your, yeah. your body temperature. So they're they're proper bona fide, not elite. You know, not sort of only a couple of us have them, but proper parts of our human anatomy that that are part of the human experience. But because we've been told so many times that we have five senses, we don't really stop to question whether or not that's true. And we couldn't get out of bed without our sense of balance. You know, you literally couldn't stand up. Yes, um, it's so important. So when it comes, the same is true, you know, if, if you take that for granted, we take intelligence for granted as well. We, you know, we minimize intelligence to academia, which is a way of looking at something as opposed to an actual skill. So you can be, you can be academic at anything, you know, but we say academic subjects, but you can have an academic approach to art. You know, you can study art without ever picking up a paintbrush or, or creating a piece of art. You can study the history of it and the way it works. You know, it's, it's a, it's a way of looking at things. Um, and we reduce it to IQ, which I'll say for another time, but it's just absolute nonsense. But because we've always done that, we don't think about the fact that, you know, we also, we, we assign creativity to being about certain subjects. Mm. And it's not. Creativity is, a, is like a- academic. It's a way of looking at things. It's a certain skill base that we have that you can apply to absolutely anything and you do on a daily basis. Imagination, we use our imaginations every day. We think of it as being child play. But if you think about what you had for dinner last night, that's your imagination. That's being imaginal. You're being, it's ability to bring to mind things that aren't present to your senses. If you think about what you went, where you want to go on holiday. Yes. That's being imaginative. You know, we, we're constantly using our imaginations. Um, but again, it's that thing of challenging. The norm, the, the grey, the way it's yeah. always been done. Do you think there's also an element of fear? Yes. And that we're just more comfortable with conformity and yeah. 
and the, and you know the 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 entrepreneurial spirit is not alive and kicking in any system <laughs> whatsoever no. because no one's trying to mess this up no one's no. trying to i of course and we're going to talk about what you do and things but generally what i'm saying is that the system is there and yeah. it's governed by people who fear to change it well yeah cuz no one i don't think anybody wants to mess up a generation of children's lives and it's it's a big system and it's a human system so it's you know by definition able to change but it's also difficult to change because there are lives at stake and you think well you know the system we have isn't perfect but people graduate and they get on with their lives and everyone mm-hmm. gets you get through it I got mm-hmm. through it I didn't get through it as it happens but you know parents get through it and so their kids will probably get through it too but actually when you look at it people aren't getting through it. You know, you look at the dropout rates, you look at the unemployment rates, you look at the imprisonment rates, you look at the fact that suicide used to be the leading cause of death in middle-aged men. It's now the second leading cause of death in 16 to 24-year-olds. Gosh, I didn't And various that. studies by the World Health Organization, yeah, have shown a lot of it is, you know, there's various reasons. There's the reasons that were always there. There's, you know, childhood abuse, but there's also, social media is a huge part of it, but there's also a huge amount of exam pressure. Mm. And, and children in these studies do cite the pressure that they feel they're under to get a certain grade to go to a certain university just actually means that, you know, it doesn't feel worth it anymore. So when you look at it, we are actually genuinely ruining people's lives with the system. But but because it's in place, you're terrified to change it. And I get it. It is a very difficult beast to change. It's just it's not impossible. At Holly & Co, we champion kidpreneurs, we call them, and, and encouraging all children to believe that their ideas and their dreams are brilliant and that yeah. they, to understand entrepreneurship, which they, you spoke about how many careers people are going to have now and it's going to be multi-hyphenated. And I love what you said, you are your constant in there. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. why it's so important we find out who our children are with creativity and purpose. And we have like the Summer Kids exhibition that's just about to happen where all these sorts of things. How do you think we as a society can give more value to these skills? Because what I see in adults is when we're embracing our creativity and our purpose because mm-hmm. we found the diamond or we found the element and we are taking an entrepreneurial, a freer approach to things. Yeah. People think I'm obsessed with business. I'm actually obsessed with people finding their element yeah. and making a job out of it so that they can be happy every single day. Not that it's easy, but they can be pursuing what their dream is. Do you agree it's the building blocks of a happy and successful life? It is. It's like it's that very cliched now quote, isn't it? Find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, I really believe that. I think by modelling it, like I said, you have one life to live. You to, and there's the, it's in the book, actually. Um, it's an astronomically small percent chance that you, that you as you are exist at all. You know, the chances of your parents having met their parents, having met their parents, right the way back to then you think, of how, you know, how many sperm a male has and how many times a woman ovulates the fact that you are you is just it's something like 10 to the power of a lot of numbers at the end of it i will find it in a second and, and quote yeah. it i know where it is in the book while i'm speaking yeah i said it's important for society's point of view to to find element but also from a parental point of view to show your children that you know it's not theoretical and it's not easy for everybody you know as i said I, and this comes from a point of privilege that it doesn't, it doesn't actually, you know, I do often think that if I just went and got a job, <laughs> life would be, you know, there'd be a steady paycheck, <laughs> life would be a lot easier in many respects, but it wouldn't be, you know, it would be, for me, any, it, would be, it would be utterly miserable. And um, to showcase to our children and to, you know, to communicate with them and to give examples of it. And that's what the element tried to do. It tried to give examples of people that you would have heard of, you know, like Paul McCartney and people to, to show mm-hmm. 
So Paul McCartney's music teacher told him that, you know, that he had no musical talent whatsoever. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Yeah, so dad's joke was, so I think it was Paul McCartney and I want to say Ringo Starr were in the same music class. And the teacher, no way. Yeah, and the teacher said that, you know, they were they were just absolutely useless when it came to music. And dad's point is, so is it safe to say that there was one teacher in Liverpool in the 1960s had half the Beatles in their class and missed it? <laughs> <laughs> how <laughs> how is that possible and here i have the, i have the number here and then You've i can got it in. i've got it it's one in 400 trillion yeah that's one in 10 to the power of two billion six hundred eighty-five million. the miracle that's crazy that you exist the of you the miracle of life yeah that you exist as who you are so what are you going to do with your life you know what and and how are you going to help your children because the chances of them being born are, are astronomically slim are, are the same you know the same yeah. number it's finding I mean, number one, it's buying that book and we're going to talk about your book as well. But it's about finding out about our children more and listening to them and empowering them and trusting them. And I I can imagine all these sorts of things. But what about also as employers? You know, it's Mm -hmm. I can imagine, you know, for the small business community, I always talk about them bringing their children in, allowing them to have the experience, experience as many new things as possible. And that's what business actually can give you. Do you think it's important to be giving our children these opportunities to sort of, from a young age, you know, your daughter's four, but when she turns 10 or something, you know, to be able to converse with the real world or do bits and bobs. Do you think this is important? Oh, I do absolutely think it's important. Um, And, you know, I wouldn't have done anything in that unschooling period without the opportunity for internships. And like I said, because it's a, I have a privileged background, you know, a lot of those were unpaid internships, but I believe incredibly strongly in creating opportunities for paid internships because only a very small number of people can work for free in the name of experience. And there is a catch-22 when it comes often in the workplace that in order to get hired, you need to have experience, but you can't get the experience unless you get hired. Um, So creating opportunities for paid interns is hugely important. I wish I, you know, there's so many things, you know, some people are old souls. Mm. I think I'm a relatively new soul and I do wish there were some lessons that I hadn't had to learn the hard way. And one, you know, I'd love for my daughter not to have to learn that money is finite, you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, we, she is four, but we're talking about next summer, maybe doing a lemonade stand, you know, and, and help, you know, yes. we love making proper American lemonade and taking it out and, um, and just creating, normalizing it, you know, yes. uh, within, because also there's this kind of feeling like you get a childhood and then you graduate and suddenly your adulthood begins. And I think that's really sad. You know, there should be more room for childhood and, and adult, yes. adulthood and there should be you should be giving more trust and responsibility to your children as well. We create too much of a distinction, I think, between the two of them. The before and the after. Yeah. I loved what, one of the things you were saying. I didn't love it, actually, because it's a bit depressing. For, <laughs> for No, no, no. no. It's, it's OK. No, but I'm saying that, you, you know, almost empowering the next generation. And you said... You know, the next generation is rising. They're the ones who've grown up in the digital age who are more connected than any other generation before them. They will also work harder for less money with higher living costs than any time before. They will inherit a whole host of messes to clean up, including an environmental crisis on the very Mm -hmm. brink. But this generation has already begun to show us that they are passionate, determined, and they are taking no prisoners. Yeah. When you look at that, are you believing that even though we're going through the cookie cutter um, educational system, that sort of the world that we're also living has opened up the minds of the young Mm -hmm. more? And that actually, along with that terrible statistic about suicide and things, but that are you hopeful for that next generation? Oh, massively. This generation that's coming up at the minute gives me a huge amount of hope. 
you know, I, we often talk about the education revolution and in it, we often talk, you know, to parents and to teachers, to educators, dad had a beautiful expression, which is um, phrase, you know, if you are an educator, you are the system. So if you change what you're doing for the kids in your class, you have changed yeah. the education system because they don't care what's happening on the other side of the world or even down the hall. They care about what happens when they walk into your class, which is absolutely true. But we forget that the whole education system was established for young people. Right. And so if we yes. can get young people involved in the education revolution, then that's a real revolution. And these, this is, you know, the generation who's striking for climate change. You know, they're marching for their lives. They're the young voices of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, they're questioning you know, the patriarchy and gender norms. And, also, you know, I, I, it almost makes you embarrassed. I'm a millennial and it almost makes me think, oh, what, what did we do when we were that age? You know, we had low, <laughs> low rise jeans and, <laughs> you know, and big brother. But um but this generation cares, you know, they really, and that's cool as well, which is, you know, that, mm. that, you know, it was when it, tiny dogs were cool when I was a teenager. Now, when you're a teenager, it's cool that, you know, you're, you're different. You stand up to, you know, you fight for something that you believe in. Um, and I think it would be criminal for us as the generations who are supposed to be guiding and steering them to not listen to them when they speak. And that, you know, that doesn't mean to just hand them the microphone and the keys to the car and say, get on with it. You obviously know what you're talking about because you can't, there is something about yes. lived experience and aging that, you know, and yes. having... Learn so much. Yeah, yeah seriously. <laughs> no, there has to be, surely. But it's about mentoring again, like we said, and, and guiding, but listening massively. Um, and they're having a moment. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And again, I'm not, I don't want to, this isn't the hill I want to die on, but I have, I have a theory around it, which is that every generation has a moment before life kicks in, before debts get too overwhelming, before responsibility kicks in, where it's much easier to have ideals because you're not having to sell your soul to make the bills, you know, make the ends meet. So we will miss that opportunity, I think, with this generation if we don't start nurturing them now through it. It's, you know, when they 18 is too late to start giving people a voice. Also, you know, we, we in the West here, we live in, in a democratic society, you know, and, and children graduate 18 and they've been told their entire first 18 years that they have no voice and what they say doesn't matter. Um, you know, they have no bodily autonomy. They have no, you know, they, they, they're just, they have to go to school, you know. Mm. we give them no voice and then we hand them a ballot when they turn 18 and, and don't understand why our democracy doesn't work properly because suddenly you have a voice and you don't know what to do with it you know you know how do you trust that your voice really matters if you've been told your entire life that it doesn't um so that you know there's so this i could go on for hours on this one but there's there are so many reasons why it's important to start listening to young people now absolutely and tell me i wanted to talk about the incredible book that you yeah. wrote with your father. Um, yes. And it's called Imagine If, and you've called it a manifesto yeah. that was completing it when your father um, sadly passed away. And it was a true labour of love. Yeah. It's a book about reimagining our education system. And this is what we have been talking about on this podcast and about giving that voice to the young and things. Tell me about it, because it was published this year. So it was in March. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. What was it like for a what were you called? You were gra a grammar literate or yes, was that gram right? grammar yes. illiterate. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Published author. Published author. Tell me what illiterate. it was like doing that. <laughs> Um, do you know, it was an incredible experience. So I, I worked, dad had been writing it for years, hadn't got very far with it. I think in part, he sort of felt like, you know, he'd written so many books and, and had said everything he felt like he needed to say on them. But also, how do you distill a lifetime's work? You know, the original commission was 10,000 words. I got it to 26,000. But how do you, um, so it's a short book, it's just over 100 pages. How do you narrow everything down? So when he passed away in August 2020 and he'd handed me this sort of stack of papers and said, you know, this is my draft. You can rewrite it if you want to. And I was like, well, of course I won't. What he didn't mention is that, you know, it was the further into the book you got, there were big 
spaces the lines you know go on double spacing you know and then suddenly it's just bullet points and and then I went back and I realized a lot of the draft he'd copied and pasted from other books because he was obviously making an outline and forming it in his head yes I was like well thank you daddy for that one <laughs> um so it was it was a really sort of daunting thing to think how do I distill a lifetime so you know it's not my lifetime worth of work how do I distill it and he had this image of it being like the Holstein manifesto you know on one piece of paper that you could you know pin to door doors and Penguin wanted it to be a bigger book and I was like how do I marry these two things and so what I ended up doing was every chapter starts with a manifesto statement and there are 10 in total and if you pull those out and put them on a piece of paper that's the manifesto right and then it, then there's a par- there's a chapter that follows it that sort of dives into the ideas of it a bit more deeply but you know it really felt so I, he died in august i started writing it the following april and it, it was the ultimate gift really it just felt like he was there writing it with me mm. you know it, it felt i went you know i, I I got. I wrote it as him, as the other thing. So it's in his. It's in his voice, and it felt like I had his voice in my head. You know, for the three months I was writing it, which was which was a gift. Yeah. Um, Did it help with your grief? Do you think? I don't know. Yes, and yes at the time. Um, but I threw myself into work. You know, we organised mm. a big twelve-hour um, memorial event for him for his birthday that March, and then I wrote the book. And what I'm learning about grief is you can only run away for it from from run away from it for so long. It does catch up with you eventually but it was nice to have three months just sitting with him and his writing and trying to make sense of it and um you know an agony as well not to be able to ask him if I, I understood this right or if I you know would you do it this way and I think you know if he was here I, I have no doubt it would be a different book if yeah. we'd actually written it together the way that we had wanted to um but I did the best I could I, I well it's <laughs> it's beautiful tell Thank me you. can I ask you we're coming towards the end of this podcast I've got a couple of yeah. questions so for you okay. they're big ones by the way All right okay as so opposed ready? to these tiny ones we've yeah. been doing for the past hour <laughs> This small That's talk. Nothing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> We're getting to Gatsby level now, okay? Gatsby yeah, all right, level. I'm ready. <laughs> what do you think the next hundred years of education looks like? And do you think change will come? Yes, I think it, I think it has to, and I think it will come. Um, I do think it comes with empowering youth voice. And I do think there will come a point, there's a brilliant book called Schools on Trial by Nikhil Goyal and he wrote it when he was about 19 and I love it because he's so angry. You know, he's, he's, he's just come out of the system and he's furious he's been put through it. And I think if that's, you know, the revolution at the moment is very polite as far as revolutions go. Yes. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of polite campaigning and talking at events and a lot of preaching to the converted. Um, but I do think what we need to start doing is actually... Less polite... Less plight, actually, you know, actually start a revolution with it. Um, and the world is changing so quickly and we're at, we are at a tipping point, you know, as, as we've come to a certain point in our evolution as a species that we can't continue the way that we have been. We, we, and it does start with education, so it has to change. And I don't think it'll be easy or pretty. And I don't think it'll be polite or subtle, but I, I have every confidence that it will happen. It just has to. How can people get involved in campaigning for that change in education? We have a platform that we are setting up that is called the Creative Revolution that's launching shortly, um, that will have resources available for people. Um, but in the meantime, it, you know, it is there is that that bit that Dad talked about, that if you're in the system, you know, you are the system. And that doesn't matter if you're a student, if you're a parent, if you're in any way related to education, you are the system. Um, you know, and for young people, you know, the UN declares that education should be to the fulfillment of the whole child. You know, so don't stand for anything less than that. You know, no, educate yourself when you write. You have a lot more than you think you do, actually. And that's, you know, another secret we keep from people. Um, so educate yourself on your rights. If you're a parent, stand up for your children's rights because you have even more rights than they do. And if you're a teacher, you know, 
it is incredibly difficult because as you say you know you are you are within the system you've you know your job particularly in places like america your job is linked to this directly to the success of the children in your class and their exam results but people don't go into teaching because you know they want to get rich mm. quick <laughs> you know it's it's a vocation yeah. and a calling and it's a people-based job uh, an incredible job an absolutely incredible job yeah. i could talk to you forever i think Thanks. we're both sweltering in this I heat, am which is meant to have d- just gone you know so I, muggy. I looked at my i mean i haven't worn tights in i don't know how long but i've got a drawer full of tights i yeah. don't know if i've kept them from my sick form or something <laughs> but when did i wear tights before and i just looked at them and i longed i longed to put on to these wear tights them. to yeah. just just be cold just to be really really quite cold and wear the jacket and the jumper and do you know what i mean all that I sort do. of stuff but um, yeah, so it is it is coming. But thank you so much for this. This has just been unbelievable to talk to you. And I know so many people will be resonating with so much. It is tough being a teacher. It's tough yeah. being a parent. We're all looking for change. But I wanted to ask you before you went um, yes. and before you might read us a letter. Um, yes. What would you say if this has been a roller coaster, this yeah. this whole experience of from your childhood to, to today, what would you say has been your biggest low so far? Do you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think in my experience, my lows and my highs have been so unbelievably linked. So mm. leaving school was, an, you know, it should have been an utmost high. And it was, it was exciting and it was a whole new start and it was terrifying, you know, and everyone said I was going to fail and it was bathing against that, you know. Um, my book got published. That was a huge high, but my dad should have been there to promote it. Yes. And actually that was a really difficult month for me. Um, yeah. I got married six days before my dad died. So my happiest day of my life, my wedding, you know, marrying the love of my life was also one of my yes. absolute saddest days. Um, motherhood, you know, I... I wanted to be a mother forever and I got postpartum depression Mm. Um, and I say this not in direct answer to your question but possibly to anticipate the next one as well one thing I have learned in life is that you can feel incredible joy and incredible pain at the same time and there is no doubt to answer the question directly that the lowest low has been dad dying yeah you know he was my favorite person on earth you know the if, if you have a person he was my person and I can't quite get my head around the fact that I'm living in a world that he's not in anymore yeah that's the lowest low I'm so sorry for your loss thank you I'm yeah. so sorry. It's rubbish. I'm so also <laughs> on the same time pleased, though, that you get to continue his legacy. Yeah. In a way, I don't know, he's not a normal dad. I mean, no. we all have our best dads <laughs> and everything, but, yeah. you know, he was no. who he was. And so, in a way, you get, but maybe can continue his whole dreams in, well, in his it. name and, and that's to my, have him next yeah. to you on your journey. That's my point. My lowest low, dad dying also gave me a huge amount of purpose in life, you know, which has yes. led to some of my highest highs, you know, traveling the world and speaking, you know, podcasts like this one, yes. publishing a book. Um, wouldn't have happened, I don't think, unless he had died, you know, so it's... yes. There have been incredible yes. highs, even despite the incredible low. It's my, I don't know if my roller coaster is flatlining. <laughs> or, I don't know. I mean, you're the first guest I don't where I go, like, so conversely, what's your greatest high? And I think you've been I the first know. guest ever <laughs> who didn't even have a roller coaster. She just put it on a straight line. And uh, yeah, she, I think so. yeah, she had a high and lows in that cart all at the same time. But I really yeah. do understand that. I, I do really understand that. And I think that's actually a great thing for us all to think about, that you can find find great high and great pain all at the same time. Um, It's 
been just wonderful, as I said, to talk to you. I'm going to, though, now hand over yes. to the grammarly, grammar literate uh, Kate, <laughs> who's a published author and a yeah. magnificent woman who's managed to write a letter to her younger self. I say this all in jest, by the way. I have. You know, we're, we're Gatsby <laughs> friends now. Um, I think this took longer than my book, writing a letter to myself, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> Um, I hand it over to you to talk to your younger self, Kate. Thank you. All right, here we go. I do feel like I should have written this in therapy. Um, Here we go. Okay. Dear Kate, I've gone back and forth for weeks over what to put in this letter. I've made lists and lists of advice I wish I'd knew earlier on. Some people are old souls, but I have a feeling that you and I are a relatively new one, and I do wish we didn't always have to learn everything the hard way. I'm not going to tell you what happens over the next several years, because it doesn't really matter. Things will happen anyway, and everything that has happened has led us to where we are. What I will say is that you won't meet the man you are going to marry until you are 26. That means that whatever relationships you have between now and 26 aren't as serious as you might think they are. That doesn't mean they aren't important or fun or worthwhile. They are. Just don't take them so seriously. You don't have to act like you're in your 30s when you're in your 20s. You have no responsibilities at all right now. No one depends on you for anything, and you don't really have to think about anyone but yourself. It won't always be that way, so make the most of it while you can. Travel the world by yourself. Take the opportunities that lead you to someone new. Make some bad decisions. Stay out later, go to a nightclub, let loose. I wish so much that I had known how carefree my 20s really were. Life gets serious enough in time, and responsibilities pile up without you realising. Stop willing time to speed up and just enjoy the here and now. And by the way, when you do meet the man you're going to marry, you'll know. Your whole world will explode and suddenly everything will make sense. He's special and he's worth holding out for, I promise. I hope you'll learn to trust yourself sooner than I did. Some people along the way will try and convince you that you aren't intelligent or capable. They'll try and fit you into a box that keeps you thinking you're less than you are because it's easier for them that way. And for a long time, you'll try and keep yourself comfy in that box, ignoring the growing pains and hoping they go away. But they won't go away. And inevitably, the box will become so small and cramped, you'll end up blowing the lid right off it and off the people who made you think you belonged in there in the first place. Because you're actually capable of more than you could dream of at this point in your life. The box feels nice at first. It feels safe and secure. But it isn't. It's that Anna Nin poem. You know, the one that Dad always quotes. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. That day will come over and over again. You will outgrow every box you're put in, so save yourself the backache and avoid boxes entirely. You are clever, you are strong, and you are so capable. Trust yourself. As I'm here, let me save you some unnecessary worry. None of the illnesses you have are terminal, so you can stop Googling every little twinge, at least until the age of 33. Also, you will become a mum like you so desperately want. A little girl will come into your life and turn it upside down. She will stretch you past any limit you thought you had. You will love more, worry more, laugh more, cry more, and sleep less than you thought was possible. It will be as incredible as you hope it will be. It will also be so much harder than you expect. Those first couple of years of new motherhood can be desperately lonely. The transition into motherhood is called matricence, and they won't talk about it in your antenatal classes. They'll prepare you for labour and breastfeeding as best they can, but they won't talk about the sadness and the anxiety. They won't tell you that while you're falling in love with this tiny baby, you're also grieving who you used to be before she came along. There is a term in parenthood, ambivalence. It means to be able to feel two polar opposite emotions at the same time. It means you'll never want to let your baby out of your sight, but at the same time you'll be so desperate for a moment on your own. It means that you can't imagine life without her, but you will ache for your old life. It's crazy and it's unexpected and it will pass, I promise. 
and it's so worth it. I'm not telling you this to frighten you, I'm telling you because I wish I had known. If I had known to expect all of these feelings, I would have been able to navigate them more easily. Maybe you will now. There's so much more I want to tell you about the importance of boundaries, about not worrying about your weight, that exercise is a secret source of happiness, that people will come and go. I want to tell you about the book you'll publish and the adventures you'll have, but I don't want to ruin the surprises. I'm also not going to tell you about the heartbreaks and the grief, the losses, because knowing won't help. They say that when you worry, you suffer twice, and that's true. Here's the big thing I want you to know. There's no secret to adulthood. Time passes and life keeps coming at you, the good and the bad. I don't think you ever figure it out or master it. And just when you think you have, something else comes along and makes you realise just how little you actually know. But over time, all the lessons you've learned add up and you find your hard edges start to round. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And each time it does, you'll be able to call on the past lessons you've learned to help you. In that sense, nothing is wasted. But you don't wake up one day and have it all figured out. No one does, even if they look like they do. The truth is, I desperately want a letter from a version of myself even further in the future. I want her to tell me what I need to know so that I can face whatever is on its way. I want her to tell me that everything will be okay. So it feels strange trying to give you advice when I still have so much to figure out myself. But something tells me that 43-year-old me will have just as many questions as I do now. Different ones, perhaps, but just as many. There's a quote from Robert Frost that Dad told me. In three words, I can sum up everything I've learned about life. It goes on. He's right, of course. Even when you don't want it to, it does go on. You can't stop it. In some ways, I still feel like I'm in my early 20s. I remember talking to Dad about it, and he had a theory that everyone has an age that sticks in their heads. His was 18. He said deep down, he really still felt 18. Mine is 23. I think I will forever feel 23 in my head. And that's about how old you are now, so enjoy every second of it. Put up some boundaries, stop worrying so much, and learn to trust yourself. I believe in you. All my love, Kate of the future. <coughs> <laughs> Is that okay? Uh, it's just so beautiful. Oh, and she just you. writes so beautifully. <laughs> and you. I just think, wow, just a wow. And um it's just unbelievable when you when you speak and you're so poetic in <laughs> how you communicate. And I can imagine your dad being incredible. That's all I could think of actually when you were reading that letter. Thank how you. incredibly proud he would be of you. And also the creative revolution under yeah. your hands. I mean, thank goodness. What is it? One in 400 <laughs> trillion chances of One you being 400 born. trillion. And, um, you know, we're looking at you. And um, thank, you. thank you so much for sharing your story today. Oh, I feel oh. so choked. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. That, I mean, that was that was a big, I, I meant it took weeks to write it because you just think, oh, there's so much you'd, you'd like to tell yourself. But actually, what good would saying everything do? You know, would you change your decisions, then you wouldn't be where you are now. Or... And I'm, you're so right. And you would love a letter when you're 40 yeah. now, you know, to please. Please to tell me to be happen. okay. <laughs> yeah. I think you've yeah. gone through your fair share. I think you're, you're, on, you're in for something wonderful. And I, I can't so. wait to follow your story. Before you leave, how can we get involved with your creative revolution? Is there something we can follow? Is that something we can look out for? So if you follow the Sir Ken Robinson channels on Instagram, 
Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, they've been quiet for a little while, but they're about to wake up in September. So follow them and it's all happening. We heard it here. <laughs> yes. Probably not first, but I'm no. just going to say first. <laughs> it is first, actually. I think it is oh, first. There it we is. go. We've got an exclusive here. Conversations <laughs> of inspiration, listeners. Bless you, Kate. And Thank cannot you. wait. We'll support from the sidelines. We'll get involved Wonderful. and we'll be your cheerleader. But thank you for all your love and openness today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget to head to adobe.com slash go slash Holly Tucker to find out how Adobe Express can fuel creativity in your business. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. 